It's really kind of you guys to take the, uh, the, the path of most resistance and come see me. I appreciate it. I, I can't promise you'll be rewarded. Seth's a pretty good speaker, so, uh, you know, sorry in advance. But, all right. So, we are experiencing a crisis of meaning in our, in our modern world that we live in today. Even as we gain immense and impressive technical mastery of our world, and we wield it in increasingly sophisticated ways to subjugate our environment, our notion of the meaning of life has dwindled to the, in proportion to the point of nearing total oblivion. Our society around us, uh, around us puzzles with the most increasingly mundane spiritual questions on a daily basis, questions so simple and so absurd that it really makes you scratch your head and wonder to, just to what depths of insanity we will actually reach before things truly come apart at the seams. We've gained material mastery at the cost of spiritual understanding, a cost that, as it turns out, far exceeds the reward. We've gained the world, but we are careening towards the destruction of our own souls. As Christians, we all have an immense advantage over the secular world in terms of questions of meaning. Uh, we have that anchor of hope that we can cling to, that anchor which which we can keep our souls, uh, that anchor that can keep our souls steadfast and secure while the billows roll around us. Uh, we have our Heavenly Father to look toward in faith, and so we can all unanimously, I hope, see and vehemently agree that the journey that our broader society has embarked on is absurd and ridiculous. Uh, we can all laugh as our Supreme Court wrestles with the most basic questions of anatomy. And as human beings identify themselves with various forms of wildlife. And yet, while we are insulated, we are not completely immune to the corrupting influence that our modern world has on us. The roots of materialism run deep. They creep into our lives in some of the most unsuspecting places, slowly and stealthily wrapping themselves around us and entrenching themselves in our lives, all the while remaining undetected. Uh, Reed spoke the other day in a lesson he gave about the danger of hidden sin, about how we can often do wrong without even realizing it. If we don't even know where we're sinning, how then can we repent? And so David wrote in Psalm 19, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then shall I be upright and my heart be, then shall I be upright, and I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. If we all keep an open mind and accept correction from others with thanksgiving, as Solomon instructs us, then repentance comes easily, and we're less prone to the destruction that these secret faults can bring. But it's very difficult to accept correction truly, especially if our errors run deep. We live in a materialistic world. We live in a world that is focused on things and not on the creator of those things. We live in a world where our leaders insist that we should follow the science instead of following God. And our increasing technical knowledge has distanced us from nature in such a way that it is increasingly more difficult to reconcile the current scientific worldview 
with the biblical worldview that our ancestors once held. In the modern scientific world that we inhabit, questions of how does it work and what is it made of take precedence over questions like what is the purpose or what higher truth does this embody? Modern science conceptualizes all things in terms of meaningless matter and mindless causality, whereas the ancient biblical worldview, the way that our forefathers of old viewed the world, strives to interpret the higher meaning and purpose of things. We as Christians can all trust that our world is filled with meaning because we trust that God is, and He's a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. And yet for many of us, not even realizing it, our most basic tools of analyzing the world around us are tools right from the materialist toolbox. And this over time can erode our faith in God. Analyzing the world in terms of what it is made of and how things work has led to the discovery of many amazing new technologies, uh, many of which are doubtlessly beneficial to all. Uh, the fact that this room has glass windows that allow sunlight in while keeping the bugs and the harsher elements out, uh, electrically powered lights so that we can clearly see each other even in the evening time. We're able to control the temperature year-round so we're all comfortable. We have carved uh, beautiful wooden pews uh, with cushions so that we're comfortable. Uh, these are all testaments to the great benefits of technology and the materials viewpoint. Yet, the mere fact that we can say that something like these pews are beneficial that we can assign value to something hints at a fact that the modern materialist mind doesn't like to admit, that there is something more, something higher than mere matter. We can say that science is a useful pursuit only when we can establish to what end it is useful, but science is not capable of establishing that end or any other. Science can only answer questions of how and what. It can never answer the question of why. And so we are experiencing a meaning crisis in our world. Christianity has been dethroned in our modern world, relegated to merely one among any number of other belief systems. It has been belittled to the status of preference, like preferring chocolate over vanilla, no better or worse than any other crazy thing someone might choose to believe, so long as it does not harm or exclude anyone else. So you can be a Christian, or a Muslim, or a pagan, or an atheist, or a Satanist, so long as you adhere to the tenets of our modern post-religious system. And so we fool ourselves into thinking that now we are following the science, that we are beyond all of that superstitious nonsense now, and that reason and common decency is now what binds us together, that all you need to do is to be a good person, whatever that happens to mean in the day and age that you live in. But as I said before, science or reason cannot bind us together. It cannot unify anyone under a common set of values any more than, say, having a good understanding of algebra makes you a good father. They're not related. Reason alone for all of its usefulness cannot make determinations of value. No matter how intelligent you are, you cannot rationalize or deduce what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad, without some base assumptions. And we have nothing to base any assumptions on without a higher power. No amount of mental gymnastics will get you from how to why. Science can help you raise up water from the ground. It can help you get a higher yield in your crops. It can help you heal injuries. But it can also help you build the most useless gadgets. 
or find the most efficient way to deceive a population or to build a bigger bomb or to grow the most deadly virus. These are all things that, that science can help us with. But the notion that science can and should lead our society betrays our inability to see our own assumptions because science cannot lead us anywhere until we first choose a direction. Science is neither good nor bad. Science is blind. And like the blind leading the blind, if we delude ourselves into thinking that our position is the scientific position, that if you are arguing with me, you are arguing with facts or science, we will fall into the ditch. As it turns out, to be a good person, as easy and innocent as it sounds, is totally arbitrary and subjective without acknowledging God, a creator that's outside of the system, that assigns value within the system. Good without God is just an opinion. It's a fad, a shifting and sinking constantly in a sea of quicksand. For the intellectually honest, the only real reason to be good without God is because you want others to be good to you. Without God, if no one is watching, it is silly to be good. If morality is determined by the individual and this life is all that there is, then selfishness reigns supreme and everyone loses in the end. I suspect intellectual honesty and materialism don't coexist very often, though, because you already have to accept some pretty ludicrous ideas to accept some of the modern post-religious dogma of the scientific community. Uh, namely, that in the beginning of the universe, there was an infinite expanse of absolute nothingness that continued on being nothing for an untold vast amount of time until one day that nothing exploded into everything all at once for no apparent reason. Okay, so to be fair, some argue to make things more tenable that rather than nothing exploding into everything all at once, it happened more gradually. So, still for no reason. This is the summary of the scientific viewpoint of the Big Bang. And it is inescapable that this is a tenet of faith. Uh, certainly not of reason. Nothing simply does not explode into everything. You could, uh, you could call this faith in the meaninglessness of life. Uh, it is, it's a sorry way to live. By the grace of God, Christianity puts all of this exhausting, self-deceptive mental drudgery to rest immediately in the Holy Scriptures. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. At once, we have a creator, and with that, we already have value and purpose and an appropriate direction to focus our praise. None of these things the modern materialists can get, no matter how hard they try. I, I want to encourage everyone here, especially those who are in uh, close contact with, with someone who is, is uh, mocking your faith in Christianity, to understand that it is truly not the Christian that has to make the most egregious mental leaps of faith, but the atheist. Atheism, atheism really is, when you get right down to it, ridiculous. To say that our entire universe, with all of its fantastically amazing complexity and beauty, just happened just exploded into being one day, is really quite a leap of faith. But then, to insist that all of this wonderful explosion of creation came from nothing and happened for no reason is really even much more mind-numbing. Things don't just happen for no reason. Nothing just doesn't go and create everything. 
There is a reason. There is a purpose to our universe. Nothing, or the cosmos is teeming with meaning. There is so much order and complexity and pattern and beauty within our universe, and that is because our universe did not explode from nothing. It has an author. The modern materials viewpoint lies in direct opposition to life and God's holy order. I think most of us will agree with this. However, speaking towards the possibility of hidden sin within our own lives, I want to put forward today that though we believe in God and worship Him, I believe we may sometimes put too much emphasis on scientific knowledge as a means to understand the world around us. Our modern society insists that scientific reason ought to rule, as if it has the capability of, of, of doing this at all. It's useful for solving specific problems, but it is blind to the important matters and cannot inform us how to live or whom to serve. Viewing the world in this way ultimately leaves the viewer empty and without purpose, which is the sad fate of so many people today who have lost the knowledge of their creator. This faith in the meaninglessness of life has deceived a great many people, and it can easily creep into our own perception of reality and drown out our ability to perceive God's hand in our own lives if we are not careful to balance it with a spiritual perspective. If we rely too heavily upon science as a lens in which to view the world, focusing on the low surface level details of exactly what things are and how things occur, while also insisting that there is no higher meaning to any of it, only simple disconnected facts. It can cause us to miss the forest for the trees and to lose out on the richness and the beauty of God's creation. The same can also be said, I believe, of reading scripture. We all naturally want to integrate the Bible with our understanding of the universe. And indeed, we should seek to do this because the author of reality and the Bible are, are the same person, the same God. The Bible describes reality. Furthermore, we want to integrate them because we want to live by the Bible, not just read it. We want to internalize it. We want God to write it on our hearts. But many of us, if we seek to do this too ardently, may find ourselves frustrated from time to time because our current understanding of the universe, according to, you know, viewed from the modern materialist lens, it doesn't gel very well with Scripture. Though we believe in God and the Bible, we simultaneously separate our present world from his world. We create a two-story universe, in a sense, in which God and miracles and divine revelation and intervention live on the upper story, and mankind, with its meaningless, mundane, mechanical existence, lives on the lower story. We believe the Bible to be true, but in the past. But then we play the part of Scooby-Doo and treat every modern miracle claim or prophetic vision, or saint, with great suspicion, automatically. We dismiss any talk of ghosts or angels or demons. We attribute all phenomena to natural causes, all major world events to conspiracies. We perceive all in our present world as meaningless, dull, secular, coincidental, man-centered. God is nowhere to be seen here. If we meet someone who sees God in everything, we tend to treat them with mockery and ridicule. Jamie shared his experiences last night of some supernatural things that had happened in, uh, to his family in the past. We have a tendency to dismiss stuff like this. We say we believe in God, but then subconsciously understand the universe no differently than the materialist does. As a giant machine of meaningless matter and energy, 
where the present is disconnected from the past, where miracles no longer happen, where prayers are not answered, where God does not speak to us, where love is a mere chemical process and the spirit is a fiction. Framing the world in this way is opposed to the word of God, and ultimately it can erode our faith in our creator and lead us down a path of nihilism. If this is how we view the world around us, reading and integrating the Bible with that world becomes a process of gradual disenchantment, of explaining away all the mystery, all of the, the, all of the miraculous, all of the strangeness and paradox and symbolism and allegory that doesn't fit with our conception of the universe. It just, it just, we, we just tune it out. It goes away. And finally, once the Bible has been sufficiently hollowed out and all the potency and magic and value has been scrapped, the reader eventually discards it altogether as a fiction. There are millions of Christians that have lost their faith in this way or on, on the road to. Uh, Nick Tervasi yesterday in his lesson mentioned Christians that he knew that were just going through the motions. These are the type of folks that only reference or think about God in church on Sunday and then go on living their lives of, as if he doesn't exist, indistinguishable from a godless materialist to any outside observer. I'm not accusing anyone here of going down this path. I believe that this church does a good job of defending the truth of Scripture over our own rational understanding, and there is deep faith in this church, and thank God for that. But it is easy to slip into this category unawares. I know my own faith could be much stronger. Christ tells us in Matthew 17 that if we had faith as we ought, even as a grain of mustard seed, then even mountains would move at our command. Our faith is not as strong as it ought to be. I believe we have a flawed perception of reality. Man has been fundamentally damaged since the fall. There is something significant that is wrong with us. Our, our, inner, our innocence has been lost. Matthew 18, chapter or Matthew 18, verse 3 reads, Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. In the Garden of Eden, man lived in a state of innocence, occupying a central place in a relatively natural environment. This naive perspective conveniently provided Adam and Eve with a full understanding of their role in the universe and the spiritual purpose of existence. However, the Garden was also a sheltered place. It was a tiny portion of a much greater world. Therefore, as soon as Adam and Eve looked beyond the limits of the Garden, and their eyes were opened, to a, to a vast, strange universe devoid of spiritual meaning. They knew that they were naked and saw their previous worldview as somewhat illusory. Once the bubble had burst, all attempts at covering it up were in vain, and they had no choice but to wander in exile in a meaningless universe until they returned to the ground. Now fast forward a few thousand years and, and compare this other example. For centuries, man has understood the earth, his natural home, to be the center of our universe with the sun revolving around it. This naive perspective still retained man as occupying a central position in the universe, but this perspective was shattered during the Copernican Revolution when our eyes were opened to the discovery that it was actually the earth that revolves around the sun, hurtling through a vast, strange universe devoid of spiritual meaning. These discoveries transformed our concepts of space, time, and causality, and ultimately completely undermined the foundations of a traditional uh, metaphysics, a traditional biblical cosmology. Christians holding to 
traditional biblical cosmology in attempt in an attempt to preserve the spiritual perspective from being completely subsumed by the materialistic worldview, tried to cover up these new discoveries and preserve a debunked model of the universe, but all attempts were in vain. Mankind was removed from their original central place in the universe, forced to cope with their insignificance in the face of the vast, desolate void they had discovered. Traditional biblical cosmology holds that man is at the center of the universe and plays a key role in it. The reason to preserve biblical cosmology over this scientific hegemony that we have now in these stories is that biblical cosmology actually describes reality on a deeper level than the scientific perspective can. Namely, that it is dangerous to acquire material knowledge at the expense of spiritual insight. In this way, the narrative of the fall perfectly matches the plight of humanity since the scientific revolution. So even though technical discoveries may have locally debunked traditional cosmology, they have ironically proven its significance on a higher level. Both of these stories illustrate two things. First, that sometimes the literal surface level interpretation can be beside the point. And second, that sight or knowledge in a material sense can cause blindness in a higher spiritual sense, which is echoed in Christ's words in Matthew chapter 13. Therefore speak I to them in parables, because they seeing see not, and hearing they hear not, neither do they understand. And, then, and in them is fulfilled the prophecy of, of Isaiah, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. Christ emphasizes the importance of perception time and time again in his message to us. Paul also, in his letter to the Corinthians, says, For now we see through a glass, darkly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, but then we know even as also we are known. So there's this notion that the way that we perceive things is very important, that there are many different levels of knowing or perceiving, and that deeper, higher levels of spiritual truth are easy to miss without the help of our Father. There is also this characteristic of children that we must recapture in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, children possess many different traits, not all of them very good. Notably, they're extremely self-centered, they have almost no patience, and they don't know much. But other characteristics of children that I think are important, and perhaps what, what Christ is getting at, are, are the child's innocence and trust, which both pertain to perception. A child naturally depends on his parents, seeing them as his provider, and has the tendency to trust them absolutely. If the parent tells the child that the sky is blue, the child learns what the color blue is from the parent's instruction. They also have a natural sense of awe or wonder and amazement at everything they, they encounter in the world. And any parent out there knows that a, a young child's wonder and enthusiasm and thankfulness is a bright light in a dark world. And, and you have to truly experience it to, to, to know what I'm talking about, but it's, it's a wonderful thing. I believe that this sense of simple trust and wonder and gratitude is what God wants from all of us. He does not want our jaded cynicism our cold indifference and apathy 
He wants us to trust him and obey him and look up to him and to see and appreciate his handiwork in the world all around us. He wants us to look at everything we encounter and see the good and see him shining through it. He wants us to listen to his voice and to follow him. There is a sense in scripture and in life that truth can be staring you right in the face, but without God's call, without his spirit within you, speaking to you and beckoning to you, enabling you to perceive him, we can totally miss it. This call to attend, this softening of the heart, this receiving of eyes and ears to perceive God's message to us, this is what we should all want. This is what we should all strive for with God's help. The way that we perceive the world is important to God. The authority and divine inspiration of Scripture is emphasized heavily and frequently in this congregation, which is wonderful. We can all agree that the Bible is a precious link that we have been given to our Heavenly Father, and we all share a deep respect and reverence for our sacred text. I am sure we can also agree that the Bible, being inspired by the Creator of the universe Himself, has a profoundly deep meaning, a meaning in which we can discover in varying degrees depending on who is reading it, and their skill in interpreting scripture, and more accurately, how much God reveals to them. I think it is accurate to say that the Bible actually has inexhaustible meaning, and it expresses truth that is actually truer than true, as Pastor quoted last week. It has a surface-level interpretation, the plain text, which is accurate, and conveys a certain message. And that surface-level text points to higher and higher truths, symbolic truths, which eventually transcend time and space as they draw nearer to their creator. And we can't even conceive of what that means. Sometimes, for understandable reasons, we are wary of accepting symbolic interpretations of the Bible or any additional level of, of spiritualization of the text because we are wary of man's corrupting influence on God's holy work. We look out at the 50 different translations of the Bible and people all over the place misusing the words of Scripture to call evil good and good evil, and we want no part of it, and that is understandable. We earnestly desire to preserve God's word, and so we are reluctant to place our trust in man to deliver his word to us. This is all completely understandable. God is good and man's heart is desperately wicked. And yet I want to caution us against going too far in this direction. On one hand, you have the notion that God's word is solid, it's firm, unmovable, unchanging, unshakable, timeless, like a mountain. And on the other hand, you have this notion that God's word became flesh. The Bible is a living text, fluid like a stream, able to adapt to any circumstances that are thrown at it, that his spirit is moving, that there is always a higher truth to be revealed when God chooses to reveal it. And I believe both of these things can be true at the same time, that God's word shares characteristics with all of these things, not just one or the other. Being the finite beings that we are, I have observed that we often tend to identify one aspect of the truth. We see one part of the picture, one extreme side of it, and then we latch onto it and, and insist that it is the complete picture. We see through a glass darkly. We have vision, but it is limited by any number of factors of our mortal, sinful, finite existence. When we see what we think is a contradiction in the Bible, we discreetly ignore passages that oppose our viewpoint and pile up passages that support it and use them as a bludgeon to convince the other side of their folly. Patience and a good deal of humility is key, I think, when we are dealing with these things. 
As conservatives, most of us tend toward one side of the, of the spectrum. We desire order, conformity, straightness, rationality, structure, dominion, rigor. These are all symbols of the right. And we see the dangers of the left very readily, that they're too amorphous, too conciliatory, always drifting, always changing. But I think it is keenly important that we recognize that our bias is not necessarily the entire complete picture. Anytime we latch onto one set of values and discard all others, we create an ideology, an idol, effectively, and place it above God. This is because the ideology is, uh, is necess necessarily not God. God is above mere ideas. We cannot contain him in a concept. And the second we try to, we, we create an image of God that is finite and necessarily inaccurate. I enjoyed Seth's sermon yesterday. Uh, in it, he stressed the importance of clinging to the Bible as our primary means of receiving truth from God and the necessity of each one of us familiarizing ourselves with the basic foundational truth of Scripture. And then he hedged his position, which is so important, by saying that though we need to be on guard against the heresy of modern Christianity, we all also have to be open-minded, just not so much that our brains fall out. This necessity of hedging ourselves, of moderating our positions, is crucial. We can't be com completely closed-minded, just as we can't be completely open-minded. Going, going all the way, one way or the other, is a disaster. Only in God is perfect balance achieved. Any student, history, any student of history knows that balance and stability is not a common thing and is fleeting when, they, when any semblance of it is attained. The course of history leads like a giant wheel of time, like a serpent continually turning back on itself and consuming its own tail. Civilizations are born, they mature, they grow old and they die, and new ones are born again to take their place, and the cycle repeats itself. Nothing in this life lasts forever. From dust we came, and to dust we will return. I remember that when I was young, I had the notion that if I were in charge of leading society, that I would do a pretty darn good job. I could solve an awful lot of problems by instituting God's law and cleaning up our government, and perhaps I could make some improvements in this way. But the older I get, the more I realize that I am no more capable of achieving perfection on this earth than anyone else. The wise man and the fool go to the grave together. We have a huge advantage over most folks here because we know who we are, and we strive to see the love and the great benefit in God's law. But in merely instituting the law, without the direct and constant help of the one who gave us that law, continually renewing us day by day with his Holy Spirit, we will still fall short. The image of the Sabbath illustrates this point well, I think. God created the universe in six days, and the seventh day he rested from his work. So six days we labor, and we are instructed to rest on the seventh likewise. This is given to us to... Uh, to offer us a continual renewal week by week, and every seven years, and every seven, seven years, this pattern repeats itself, the notion that we need continual renewal and rebirth. During the week, we work, we build structure, we take dominion, we allow reason to reign, we bind up, and then one part in seven, we are commanded to rest from our labors. We worship, we sleep, we liberate, 
We allow the structures that we maintain to succumb to the destructive forces of time for a season. We loosen that which was bound. Normally in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, for instance, the Bible doesn't have many, thing, many good things to say about rest. Uh, for instance, much, by much slothfulness the building decayeth, and through idleness of, of the hands the house droppeth through. And yet, we are commanded every week to rest from, uh, from our work. At first glance, we may not see the necessity of the Sabbath. Everything seems complete on the sixth day, but God insists that the week is not truly complete without the Sabbath. There, there's kind of a cool ge geometric analogy that I found the other day that, that I'd like to share with you. Okay, so when trying to figure the circumference of a circle, you can use the radius, the length from the center to the edge. If, if, you, lay, if you lay this length out and use it as a measuring stick, it will take six lengths and then a remainder to complete the circle. And that remnant is an irrational remainder, a number which can never be completely calculated. So, too, our modern society sees no real purpose for the Sabbath. It seems unnecessary to us, just as God seems unnecessary to us. We insist that we can achieve a perfect system without God, that we are at the pinnacle of human achievement in any given moment and are ascending to heaven to take the throne for ourselves. There's a speech by uh, Tim Cook. Uh, he's the, the, the current CEO of Apple that really reveals this, the satanic spirit that has enthralled man. In it, he talks of, of Apple creating a perfect system, or attempting to create a perfect system, a one-world order akin to a modern Tower of Babel that includes all aspects of society. They seek to bring all of the myriad marginal identities together to the center and give them a place in this system. Tolerance and inclusion is the only virtue in this society, and because what he seeks to do is self-evidently right in his eyes, anyone that opposes his system cannot be tolerated. They seek to accomplish this with technology and, and artificial intelligence, but, in, but insist that through technology, man can be the, the, quote, the god out of the machine, because man has the godlike ability to determine right from wrong. It is a great irony, but by no means a coincidence, I believe, that their company's symbol is an apple. The great arrogance of man to insist that he can achieve perfection without God will most assuredly lead to their destruction. The stone that was rejected by the builders will smash the image of the beast and will become the head of the corner. There is a great mystery in God's word, that death, though terrible, is a necessary evil, that Christ was slain from the very foundation of the world, that he has trampled down death by death, and he calls up to he calls us up to take up our cross and do the same. Those who cling to their lives, who ignore God's Sabbaths and hold on to their pride, will not avoid the inevitability of their sacrifice. And those who lay down their lives willingly will be given new life again. I pray we can all be humbled by the great wisdom of God, that we never fail to recognize our own shortcomings and inferiority and dependence upon our Savior, and that we temper our pride with a deep love and patience for one another and continual prayer for God's help in our lives. Thank you.
Does anyone have any questions they'd like to ask Jonathan? Does anyone have a comment they'd like to throw up? Yes, sir. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's it's very explicit. Yeah. It's for sure. For sure. Yeah, that 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 symbolism we sometimes we don't give it much credence, but it it happens. It, it happens all around us. Yeah, I think even when the symbolism isn't intended. Yeah. Yeah. So I think God, God, a lot of times is behind a lot of symbolism, even when they were intended. I read an article. I'm not, I'm not sure how accurate it is, but they were saying that the reason he chose the apple is because he made a statement that the boy was going to want this as much as they want to sin. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty explicit. <laughs> Right, right, yeah. <laughs> it illustrates, uh, I mean, your comment, John, regarding the apple, illustrates the sovereignty of God. Um, I think one of the, just, you know, you had a lot of excellent things you said, but you alluded to the sovereignty of God a couple of times. And uh, in my view, that's, that's one of the great under-emphasized doctrines of Christian Christianity, our conception of God is much smaller than what it ought to be, and um, the idea that God is completely sovereign, meaning He is, and then we'd have to, you know, at least have to kind of define theologically with some care in terms of God's foreknowledge and God's complete power, and nothing happens without His permission. Nothing happens. He's not surprised in any way <laughs> when things happen. Um, so all those things would probably have to be kind of carefully defined theologically. But in speaking broadly, we ascribe too much power to men, powerful men, men to which we are willing to ascribe a certain amount of sovereignty to them rather than sovereignty to God. Right. Everything that happens is because some men somewhere planned it. Couldn't be that God planned it. Couldn't be that God knew and God's action was behind it. No, some men somewhere <laughs> planned that to occur. Nothing is an accident. Oh no, nothing's an accident. Some men somewhere planned it to happen. So that to me is a, is a dangerous place to be in our thinking. And uh, so anytime I hear someone talk about the sovereignty of God, I'm pleased, I'm, I'm really pleased because it, it, it's an under-emphasized under piece of theology because of the implications that flow out and not fully understanding just how, how enormous God is. Yeah, His will will be done one way or the other. Yeah. We, can, we can climb on board, but you know, there, there's, no, there's no slowing it down. <laughs> Do we want to close with a hymn?